Please turn your Bibles this morning, not to Romans, uh, but to Philippians chapter 4. This is found on page 982 in the Pew Bible, if that's what you're using. You can see, if you're visiting, you can see the outline of this morning's sermon on the insert that you received in the bulletin. Philippians 4, we'll begin reading with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you to open up our hearts to receive this, your Word, Lord, may all that is said and thought uh, glorify your great name. We pray that you would lift yourself up in our hearts and that we all the more will put ourselves into your gracious hands. Amen. Uh, kids, before I give you our four uh, words, I want to give you a warning because sometimes I know how it is. Kids take you out after the service and, you know, rough you up a bit, you know, work you over. I just given you a warning because you wouldn't know this otherwise. But this morning I've got my shark socks on. So uh, don't mess with me. OK, got my shark socks on. Um, so the four uh, words or phrases, Charlie Brown, idolatry, those really go together, don't they? Charlie Brown, idolatry, sinkhole, and then Mordor. Mordor. How many know what Mordor? Oh, surely there are more readers than that. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. All right. <clears throat> so, welcoming God's sentinel, shalom, peace. The Old Testament word shalom means to be put back together again kind of the opposite of Humpty Dumpty. All the king's men and all the king's horses couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, nor can we put ourselves back together again, but God puts us back together again. Uh, our humanity, and he puts our community back together again, and finally he puts all of creation back together again. Peace is a synonym for salvation in its wholeness, its richness, its completeness. But the question is, how do we deal with our fear? How do we deal with anxiety and worry? You know, even Freud said that anxiety is where the most important questions converge. If you can solve its riddle, that is, if you can solve what's causing you your worry, it will throw a flood, floodlight on our whole mental existence. So this isn't a superficial thing. Uh, Ed Welch, one of the counselors out of Westminster Seminary, in his book on fear, says that our anxieties and worries reveal our desires. They reveal our needs. They reveal what you value 
what you love. Anxieties bore into the core of who we are as human beings. No surprise that God's most common, uh, one of his most frequent commands is, do not be afraid. God is alert to your fears. He doesn't ignore them. He's not impatient with them. He shows the great need and danger of them, uh, the situation of fear, how hard it is to avoid fear, how difficult, debilitating, and deadly fear is. That's why he addresses it so much. It is an important issue to God. Charlie Brown says this, I have a new philosophy. I only dread one day at a time. <laughs> and it's beyond us coping with our anxiety and fear. We need nothing less than God's great work of peace that comes from him. That's the appeal of this passage. It's his peace that must guard our hearts and minds. And some of our problem is we don't recognize the critical need of God's peace in our lives and what, how pervasive anxiety is in our lives. Paul says in the next letter after Philippians and Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Let shalom guard and rule your heart. Don't be a playground for anxiety. Don't be the field where anxiety grows. Don't be anxiety's boxing bag. In every situation, Paul is saying here in Philippians, anxiety can be like a termite infestation, chewing away at your foundations, chewing away at the structure of your life, undermining practically everything you do and affecting all your relationships. Anxieties from Satan's standpoint stand in front of you to block out the goodness of God, to isolate you, shut you up, uh, up alone with your problems. Anxiety alienates you from God and others. And deep-rooted fear and anxiety creates patterns for hurting others, ignoring others, patterns of anger and abuse. In short, patterns of vortex and vacuum in which we're not pouring ourselves out into other people uh, from the fullness that we have in Christ, but we're sucking life out of others in our desperate effort to deal with our fears and anxieties. Fear and anxiety is a serious, serious issue. But many times we don't know that what we're doing to others or how we're treating even our spouses or our children or sometimes our closest friends has to do with fear and anxiety. Thus, God says here, do not give in to fear. Do not be crippled and paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Do not be controlled by anxiety and fear. Do not give in to its tyranny. Over and over, he says, do not be afraid. Well, in the first place, we must welcome joy and gratitude, as Paul says here in verse 4. And the original is just like the English. He begins and ends with the word. Rejoice 
always. Again, I say rejoice. So it's a neat little structure there to underscore the importance of rejoicing. And to say again is, yes, in spite of everything, rejoice uh, at all times. Again, in spite of everything, I'm saying rejoice. Almost as though he's anticipating your question. Yeah, but look at what, I, again, rejoice. This is what I'm commanding you. In every circumstance. And this is not some silly, shallow, praise the Lord every second, you know, where you just match everything with praise the Lord. But at least, at the very least, a quiet acknowledgement of his great power in creation and goodness in creation. And then his love and commitment in dying for us. Make your glorious creator and rescuer the backdrop of your whole life, the atmosphere in which you breathe, the constant context of your life. That's part of what it means to rejoice always. So we must embrace joy and gratitude. Swing the gates wide open for joy and gratitude. Always, he says. Let them run wild in your life. Run free in your life. Let them wash into your life to encourage you. We have to see reality from the perspective of who God is. I've mentioned before my glasses that I got in the fourth grade and driving home and seeing bricks for the first time and leaves for the first time. We must wear the glasses of gratitude and joy they help clarify for us what life really is. It's an appeal to see and acknowledge God, to rejoice in all that He is and all that He's done for us and will do for us. Joy and gratitude enable you to break through the clouds and see His goodness, to see His control. In praise and thanksgiving, we recall his constant, abundant care of the whole creation. So, joy and gratitude is a purposeful rec recognizing of God. And I want to set a tiny challenge to you. Do you spend five minutes a day concentrating on the goodness and greatness of God, either in, in creation and redemption, and just sitting there and thanking him and praising him for item after item that comes to your mind. That's not a lot of time in 24 hours, five minutes. But I dare say that can be very rare among God's people, just to praise him, just to thank him. For me, it helps because I like biology and all, everything out there to start with an item like trees. I've done that many, I'm just gonna isolate trees. So I love the shape of trees, I love the shade of trees, I love the pecans that are on trees and peaches that are on trees, thank you. Thank you for all the different beautiful woods that come from trees. Thank you for the aspens, the largest living organism in the world, because they're all connected. You maybe get out the book and read a little bit about trees and then thank God for trees. <laughs> take fish. Take 
bears, take mammals, take whatever, I, insects even. Oh yeah, butterflies, praying mantis, dragonflies. Those two are the only ones that have, you know, rotating heads, dragonflies and praying mantis. You can go on and on, bees, etc. But begin somewhere, begin at the easiest place for you to get into thanking him and recognizing him. And then, of course, even in uh, not just creation, but culture, all the things we enjoy in culture, you could just go around your house praising God that the, the, the cultural possessions that you have, the number of people that have been involved to build and make the things that are in your house. Amazing what God has done to bring all of that to, right to your fingertips. Anyway, get started. Get started. And thanksgiving, you see, in this passage permeates all prayer, with all prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, permeating all things. Why is thanksgiving so important? Because thanksgiving begets faith. It's actually an act of faith that we are beginning to trust him and put ourselves into his hands by thanking him. Romans 1.21 says the first step away from God was the fact that we would not honor and thank him as God. That was the first step away from God is we refuse to thank you. We refuse to honor and praise you. We refuse to enjoy you as our God. It's the first step away from being a human being. It's the first step away toward deadness and lifelessness. You were made for gratitude and adoration. It's the water in which you thrive. These are your nourishment. This is your healing medicines. These are your salves. These are the lotions on your dry skin. Ice water on a scorching day. Thanksgiving is like discovering bluebell ice cream and finding out it's good for you. <laughs> oh, it's so enriching for your life. It's so soothing. It's so calming. It changes the way you treat people. Hard to be mean to people when you're overwhelmed with gratitude. Thanksgiving, and I don't mean Thanksgiving the holiday, Thanksgiving is delicious and nutritious. In Thanksgiving and joyful praise, we acknowledge that we are dependent creatures. We acknowledge that everything we have comes as a gift. That's why it begets faith, because it teaches us that we're dependent. To begin by praising God for the fact that in this situation, as it is, He is ruling. He is with me. He is giving Himself to me. He will do me good in this. He will form me and grow me in this. He will use me. He will manifest Himself to me. And He will manifest Himself through me. He will be with me all the way through it to the end. You see, such a beginning of recognizing Him is the end of anxiety. To begin thanking God is to begin to walk away from anxiety. Grace begins to tear out the rotten boards of anxiety. Well, 
welcome joy and gratitude and then welcome an open life before God doesn't he he underscores this here doesn't he uh, to make known in everything let your request be made known to God in everything Calvin writing in the 16th century says this writes this unload into the bosom of God everything that harasses us I love that terminology unload into the bosom of God everything that harasses us and then he says we're not made of iron we're not made of iron we must exercise ourselves in prayer we must make room for him cast our care on him let it be his care lay out our troubles openly to God spread them out before them commend yourself and all that is going on in your life into his care lean onto him have a full disclosure in his presence prayer is our openness about our needs before God it's also our emptiness in his presence you see as you're being open with him what you're going through, you're also making yourself empty before him acknowledging everything about you is what's needed in this situation oh God uh, the New American Standard is more literal because it, it really reads like this um, nothing he says nothing be anxious okay that's literally how it starts so New American Standard be anxious for nothing in nothing be anxious so don't let anything allow nothing to enter the arena of anxiety beat it off with God's presence and God's promises and you do that by letting God know what is troubling you being personal with God don't ignore your anxiety and allow it to fester and eat at you don't nurse it don't use it to turn your focus on yourself and away from love and care of others get it out before God lay it before God and perhaps you think your anxiety doesn't seem important compared to others well I'm not going through that much there well God thankfully doesn't have a ratings chart he doesn't assign a number sorry you're way way down the list here uh, of importance uh, he understands how stubborn anxieties can be and how they can come out of nowhere how invasive they can be how controlling they can be our fears are never trivial to God God is like the captain who says don't be afraid I know what to do he's really in control and he wants you to cast your care upon him Psalm 55 says cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you he will never permit the righteous to be moved and Peter uh, echoes that in that phrase in first Peter 5 cast all your care upon him because he cares for you that's the motivation why cast all your care upon him because he cares about you and he wants to hear you he wants to take those burdens on himself 
the king comes and basically bends over and urges you to lay your burdens upon him. And of course, if he bore your sins and was punished for them, do you think he won't bear your burdens in care and love to you? Thirdly, welcome humility. Obviously, this calls for total dependence, prayer and supplication in everything, humility before him. It means I acknowledge I don't have it together. I don't have the answers. I can't change the situation. Uh, the elders have looked at this passage where Jehoshaphat says, facing this horde of people that can hardly see the end of the sea of the armies. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I just love that. We, look, I don't even know what to do. I don't know how to handle this situation. I can't even begin. But my eyes are on you. In my helplessness, in my lostness, in my blindness, in my confusion, in my paralysis, in my numbness, my eyes are on you. My eyes are on you. You know, it's encouraging to me that God himself is not anxious. I may seem simple, but God's not anxious about the future. He's not anxious about your future. He's not anxious about what you're facing today because all these things are in his hands. He's accomplishing his purposes for us and nothing will stand in the way of his purposes. Enter into his view of things, his purpose, his sovereignty, his goodness. See it from his perspective. And I love where Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves. And then he says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Another, the same that is said throughout Scripture. I impart myself to you through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I share with you my peace and my well-being. I will form a fellowship of peace with you. And this idea of, as he says, beyond all comprehension or beyond all understanding, it means anything we can devise for ourselves, it's beyond that. Anything that we and our minds could try to create for us in terms of a world of peace, no, it's far beyond that. He gives us his peace. We cannot achieve this on our own. It's beyond all that we're capable of is what Paul is saying. So rest yourself in him. Rest yourself in him. Again, the dependence. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he's the one who hears. We must be the ones who pray. <laughs> he is the one who hears. I love the context also of held off to this point where he says cast all your care upon him because he cares for you but here's the here's the context of that humble yourselves 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You see, the proud do not cast their anxieties upon God. It's the humble that do. He resists the proud who refuse to cast their anxieties on him. And he gives peace a warrior's duty, doesn't he? That peace will stand sentry. Peace shall keep a guard over your hearts. It will protect you like a detachment, a garrison of soldiers. C.S. Lewis quotes an unknown writer. He says, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. God is our sentinel. God is the one who guards us. Then finally, the stupor of anxiety versus the adventure of shalom. And it may be uh, weird that I put it this way, but anxiety about the future is many times worse than the event itself, right? Fear can be about the past, present, or future, but its preferred time zone, as we know, is the future. You know, children have amazing imaginations, but worry is where adult imaginations show their mettle. That's where adult imagination flexes its muscles to consider that things don't presently exist, but we have a vision for them, a vision of anxiety where we create uh, a new reality. Uh, as one has said, an experienced warrior leaps frog, leapfrog from future to past to back again, never landing in the present. <laughs> the future anxiety can be in technicolor, boldly painted with all the gory details. He says, our imaginations need a warning label. Warriors are irrational. They think the worst about tomorrow, but it doesn't happen. They don't have time to consider that because there's too much to worry about for tomorrow, there's no use in doing it. No, advanced warriors worry about everything. Swedish Proverbs says, worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. And I love how Corey Tinboom puts it. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. But again, our worries point to what we really care about. Whatever we're afraid of, whatever threatens us, it points to our vulnerabilities. And we must ask ourselves, what do my fears say I trust in? What do my fears say I love? Your fears speak to you. They proclaim to you something about yourself. We need to locate our, our fears. And sometimes the, the rejoicing and thanksgiving give us a frame of mind, give us the strength to begin to try to locate our fears. Like spotlighting a shining alligator eyes at night on the bayou. I haven't done that. I just say it, you know, like, as though I have. <clears throat> um, but there you are, spotlighting your fears, trying to see... Where is this coming from? What am I afraid of here? Because worry is like a, a false prophet. 
Michel de Montaignan, or something like that, <laughs> the Frenchman, wrote, My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. Right? That's us inventing a worry world. Worry creates a sinkhole that drains away all constructive thinkers, uh, all constructive thinking. And worries being false prophets are, are like palm ring or like a Ouija board, tarot cards, just inventing stuff out of nowhere. We worship our worry. We enthrone it. We make it our Bible truth. Fear wants to be your boss. It wants to be your authority. It claims to tell you how life really is, and it won't be easily persuaded otherwise. Worry creates a vision for your life, but it's not God's vision. It's not a vision shaped by His promises. It's not a vision shaped by His accomplishments for you. It's a negative vision, a vision apart from God. In many ways, a vision against God. And all the while, a false vision as we invent what might happen. But shalom, wholeness, orients us toward love and it orients us toward the adventure of love. And by God's grace, as Ed Welch writes, our desire to love can outdistance our desire to be loved ourselves and outdistance our concern and anxiety. True humanness is found in sacrificial love for our enemies than being the object of someone else's affections. And so in Scripture in Philippians 2, we're told that we're to count one another as more important than ourselves. And you see, anxiety turns us in. And the move to push out, the move to love and care for others is one of a chief way in addition to praise that breaks the back of our anxieties. God certainly is the one who loves more than he is loved and he wants to bring us into that joy of loving more and being more concerned about loving than we are being loved. Will we rest in him? Will we put ourselves in his hands? Will we take joy in the place of our, uh, let joy take the place of our discontent and anxiety? Looking away from ourselves to the needs of our brothers, as Moise Silva says, yielding our rights and privileges to one another. I love the phrase in uh, Get Out of Your Own Way by you 2 that says love has got to fight for its existence. The enemy has armies of assistance. And one of its greatest army uh, of assistance is anxiety. And love must fight for its existence so that we don't turn in on ourselves, but we're pouring ourselves out to others recklessly, knowing my life is in his hands. Lord, orient me. To give myself away to others and not to flee in self-protection. Well, at the end of Lord of the Rings, there was a diversionary attack uh, of going after the Black Gates of Mordor while the hobbits, of course, are privately throwing the ring 
into the fire. And I love Gimli, uh, the dwarf's response to hearing the plan, the plan that they're going to go against the black gates of Mordor. Absolutely suicidal mission, right? <laughs> you got to be in mind, okay, we'll all be killed. There's no way this is going to happen. But it was diversionary. Whatever might happen to us, it doesn't matter if they can get that ring in the fire, okay? That's the point. So <laughs> the door says, and th this I'm giving as an illustration of our casting aside fear and saying we're going to love recklessly and wildly and we're going to love and joy as God takes care of us, okay? That's my point. So Gimli says, certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? <laughs> so our question is, what does my father want me to do now? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my father who sent me. And what was that food? It was to lay down my life for others. That's his food. That can be our food as well. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, oh, gracious Lord, how you've loved us fiercely. How you, Lord, did not see equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to hold on to. But you poured yourself out lavishly, taking upon yourself servanthood, even to the point of death on the cross. Thus you loved us. That's how you counted us, Lord. Laying down your life for our benefit, though we had turned against you. Oh, Lord, thank you that you call us into that love. You call us out of our anxieties and fears into a life of praise and thanksgiving and love. And though we know we will fight this battle to our last breath, give us grace, Lord. That we'll never be dominated, though attacked by many, many times fear and anxiety. To never be dominated by these things. But, oh Lord, to fight, to wrestle, to lay hold of you, to lay hold of your promises, to lay hold of joy and adoration and thanksgiving and love. Enable us, Lord, to live this life to, as Paul's words, fight the fight of faith. We ask this for your glory and honor and the good of your church and kingdom. Amen.